episode 28. Welcome, friends. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in again to another episode of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. I am Kirk Van Odeham, your host, coming to you from my studio slash study in Yorktown, Indiana. And I have a kind of unusual and uh, odd topic to talk about today. And I'm going to answer some questions today on the topic of demonology and mysticism. And so I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but what we're really going to get into here is a topic of uh, demonology and mysticism uh, imbuing itself into falsely so in our understanding of Scripture and how we should be cautious about that. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, or perhaps if you're a new listener, invite you uh, to check out the website of this podcast. Uh, The website is kirkvan.com, K-I-R-K-V-A-N.com. And there you can find more information about ways to access the podcast, both in audio and video formats. You can also ask a question to be addressed on future episodes of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. You can also find links to our social media presence on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and others. And uh, we would just be so pleased if you would connect with us and discover ways to follow and be notified of new episodes when they come become available. And uh, I do want to say one more thing very quickly, and we are honored to be uh, that Bible FAQ with Kirk Van uh, is available on a new resource called Discipleship Central. Discipleship Central is a streaming media uh, provider uh, for the United Pentecostal Church International, and my podcast is one of the featured podcasts Uh, on Discipleship Central. So I encourage you to check this out, discipleshipcentral.com. I've become a member, and I've uh, viewed many of the original videos and other content there. It is definitely worthwhile worthwhile, and some great uh, original content, classic content, and other things that will certainly uh, uh, get your interest. So again, that's discipleshipcentral.com. Well, let me get into the question for today. And our question Uh, comes to us from Heather in Crystal Lake, New Jersey, uh, via Facebook message. And uh, let me first read the whole question in its entirety, and I'll say a few things about it. The question, uh, Heather writes, So, I've got three questions about the Bible that got me confused. Question one, please read Genesis 1, 26-27 and Genesis 2, 18-22, My question is, why a human female was created twice? One isn't said how, and the other is from Adam's rib. Question two, who is the night creature? Mentioned Isaiah 34 and 14. Question three, who is Azazel? Seen in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 8, 10, and 26. Thank you. Well, first, thank you, Heather, for the question. I appreciate I should say the questions. And typically, I don't address multiple questions from the same person in the same episode. 
but as I read this, at first it didn't jump out to me because I didn't really read the question carefully. But when I went back to it and began to begin, to, you know, mentally formulate a response, it very quickly occurred to me that these are all on the same theme and in the same same vein. It might not seem like it because we have from Genesis and then Isaiah and then Leviticus. So we have from uh, you know, the, the book of origins here, and then, the, you know, another book in the Torah, the law, and then we have uh, uh, a prophet. But the kind of uh, theme or vein that this deals with is, is on the study or the topic of demonology and also linked to mysticism. And what I mean by demonology is the study of demons, also known as devils, fallen angels, etc. And there's nothing wrong with looking into, you know, biblical questions and themes and principles as they pertain to the, this topic or any other for that matter. Of course, we want to know what the Bible says about all things. Uh, so I I've certainly have no opposition to that. But typically, demonology goes way beyond that, and it begins to delving into extra biblical uh, mysterious sources that depend on pagan heathen religion and uh, ideology and practices, even uh, occultic uh, uh, practices and ideologies. And what we mean by occultic is things that rely heavily on supernatural, paranormal, mystical uh, information or experiences. And then, you know, mysticism can be defined as, well, often defined as beliefs or practices uh, of religious ecstasies that involve alternate subjective states of consciousness. That's one uh, kind of vein in that. But another vein is just simply, uh, you know, beliefs and practices uh, that are based on occultic ideologies or myths or legends or, or, or practices. And that's where we get into the mysticism of he, uh, uh, here, Judeo-Christian mysticism, you could say. And so, Often, you know, such mysticism is apocalyptic in nature. It's often obsessed with spiritual or supernatural themes. Again, nothing wrong with that which is supernatural or spiritual, except when it goes beyond biblical truths and principles and tries to draw from other sources, particularly those that are have uh, come from uh, not only uninspired origin, but very religiously questionable origins, uh, idolatrous religions and what have you. And so from that matter, you know, demonology and mysticism, in my mind, these related uh, fields, practices, uh, what study, whatever you, uh, from my mind, it, it can be a dangerous pursuit. And I would certainly caution people to steer clear of this sort of thing. Now, as far as our questions, I don't know this uh, this um, individual, Heather from Crystal Lake, New Jersey. I, I have no idea who it is. I'm glad she listened to the podcast. I'm certainly not accusing her of being you know, influenced by demonology or mysticism. Perhaps she just saw this somewhere and wants a more balanced biblical view of how, how to think of these things or how to answer people who are asking her. So I'm going to assume the best, and that's the situation. But just in general, to everyone, I would always caution people about, you know, getting far away from Scripture and trying to find answers to questions, um, these ambiguous uh, kind of um, relatively uncertain uh, topics, verses, and, and terms in the Bible and trying to bring in other sources that, again, 
are of questionable religious nature to try to bring clarity and uh, to, to what the scripture says. should be the other way around. It should be the Bible that brings us clarity and uh, informs us of truth um, to other uh, areas of life, not, not the transverse. So with that in mind, uh, let me just quickly also say that in all three of these situations, it seems that these people who have this kind of mystical bias have seized the opportunity uh, to, uh, to kind of abuse or hijack scripture and take it far out of context in order to support wild speculative ideas that have that are not introduced or upheld by the Bible. I'll address these questions and, and tell you what I mean by that here in just a moment, uh, but we have to be careful about this. So, so all three of these questions all are uh, have to do with a term that is relatively uncertain, a, a, uh, a verse that is somewhat ambiguous, and so people have seized upon that and taken that as an opportunity to imbue our understanding of scriptural with demonology and, and spiritualism and, and mysticism. And, uh, and I think to the detriment of, of the, the more common, more traditional uh, understanding of what these verses are probably telling us. So let me address each one briefly. I'll take them in reverse. First question that I'll address here uh, was, who is Azazel seen in Leviticus 16, 8? 10 and 26. And I've seen alternate pronunciations of this. I'll just go with Azazel for our purposes today. So this comes to us again from Leviticus 16. And let me just kind of set a background here briefly. Now I'm just going to try to be brief in my explanations here. I understand there, there's probably more to it than what I'm going to get into. I'm just going to pro provide a brief overview to make a point. Leviticus 16 involves this ritual or, or rite of, of what the King James and other traditions called the scapegoat. And this scapegoat, of course, there's more to it than just the scapegoat. There's other sacrifices and, and parts of the ceremony. But what's salient to our question here is this practice, uh, this ceremony of the scapegoat. Uh, the scapegoat bears the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement, or the Hebrew called the Hebrew. Uh, term is Yom Kippur. So this is a Jewish festival to be observed annually. Uh, it's talked about in the law. It's commanded to be observed throughout all the days of the nation and the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And so again, without getting into a deep description of this, uh, the part that's important that uh, pertains to this question is this understanding, this commandment that God says for the high priest to take two ghosts and go to a place and cast lots. In other words, uh, use a method to randomly choose uh, which goat is to, to receive which fate. So the fate of one goat is going to, is going to be taken to the tabernacle or later the temple. And it's going to be sacrificed as a sin offering. And of course, there's a long, elaborate description of exactly how that plays out. Uh, but then the other goat, uh, the, 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 um, the destiny of this other goat then uh, is that that goat will be the scapegoat. It'll be the goat that bears the sins of the people. And again, there's more description on how they do that. It involves the high priest laying his hands on the ghosts and kind of uh, transferring or imputing the sins of Israel onto the goat. And then someone, uh, another priest who's given the responsibility, takes the goat out 
into the desert, out into the wilderness, far away from the camp, from the people of Israel, and they release it, and it never to return. So obviously that scapegoat is, some, scapegoat, uh, is symbolic of the sins of the people leaving Israel, and the, the other goat is the atonement uh, for Israel. So it's symbolic. So in the middle of this description and the middle of these commandments to be carried out involving the scapegoat in these three verses, Leviticus 16, 8, 10, and 26, there's a ver the, the, this word, the Hebrew word is azazel, is used. And so let me jump ahead a little bit just to tell you that some people believe that this azazel refers to this goat demon and that this scapegoat, this this the, that the goat that has the sins of Israel is to be taken and it is for Azazel. It's for the goat demon. So that that's what the question is getting at. Is is that true? Is that what this means? Well, the word of Zazel is somewhat of uncertain uh, meaning, but it's not that uncertain. Uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty about exactly what it meant because like lots of words and lots of languages that fall out of common usage, um, and, you know, unless we have a dictionary from the time to know exactly what they're referring to, there might be have a little bit of interpretation to figure out what it means. But the traditional common understanding was always that it meant and also that they can, you know, ascertain the root words that it came from and that sort of thing. So it's not just guessing of what it meant, but it was always believed to me one of two things. One explanation, what is that Azazel just mean that this is the goat. Uh, for departure or for removal. And that's basically the understanding of the King James or translation scapegoat. It's the interpretation and the translation of every literal translation of the Bible, including the Amplified Bible, the literal translation of Scripture, LITV, the Young's literal translations, and, and several others. Uh, this idea that the goat is for departure, for removal, and that azazel means for departure or for removal. And all the, the Greek Septuagint, which is the 3rd century B.C. Greek translation of the scripture, uh, translates it into a Greek term that means sent away. The Latin Vulgate trans, translates it into a Latin term, which means emissary goat or the goat that's sent away. And so they also have the same meaning. So this is the meaning throughout most of history. The other uh, understanding of it is that the term might mean, and this is based more on the kind of the linguistic construction of root words, it might refer to uh, the goat for the uninhabited place or the goat for the desolate place or the goat for the rugged place, basically describing the wilderness or the, or the desert area that the goat is supposed to go to. And this understanding comes from rabbinical tradition uh, and also, I said, like a literary construction of the root words in the Hebrew. So the Christian Standard Bible, for example, translated uninhabitable place uh, for this Hebrew word azazel. So they kind of both mean the same thing, departure, removal to an uninhabited, desolate place. So they both have to do with, you know, the context of what's going on here. Either one's probably acceptable. And, you know, as in many words that have more than one meaning and definition, perhaps this is one. Perhaps it does mean kind of both things and you have to choose which one according to the context. Whatever the case may be, that's the common sense, logical, rational historical, traditional understanding what Azazel meant. 
It's not until much later when people started being influenced by some of these apocalyptic writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other uninspired, uh, unauthoritative, uh, kind of, you know, random, mystical, apocalyptic books and writings that they begin to say, oh, maybe there's more to this tradition. Maybe it means something else. Maybe it's talking about this goat demon and the sins of Israel. This goat is to be sent to this goat demon. Well, again, I don't want to delve too deeply into this. There's much I could discuss. I just simply don't believe that's the case. Um, yes, there is this Enochic literature, the Book of Enoch itself, which dates around 300 to 200 BC, uh, a book that was inspired by that called the Book of the Giants, which is around the second century BC. Another one called the Apocalypse of Abraham about the first century AD. They refer to this character, this mythical character, Azazel, as being this fallen angel, a watcher, as it's called from the book of Enoch, this rebellious angel who is instrumental in corrupting mankind and causing uh, fallen angels and, and female humans to mate, which is uh, an erroneous interpretation of Genesis 6, the apocalypse of Abraham, this other, you know, uh, uninspired writing talks about this Azazel is a demon that was manifest in Abraham's day to thwart his sacrifice to God in Genesis 15, which is not stated in the text. That's again, just interpreted just out of thin air for the most part. Uh, basically these resources and not some Jewish mystics in the medieval period, uh, in other words, the dark ages, and I'm talking about like 1100 AD and later, some Jewish mystics wrote, you know, kind of their rabbinical understanding of, the, of Azazel belonged to a class of goat-like demons called the Seroyim. Again, this is not from the Bible. This is from other traditions borrowed, by the way, from other idolatrous practices and uh, heathen pagan religions and what have you. I could go on. There's more things you could go into uh, about the history of this and, and the other cultures that surrounded Israel and that kind of thing. But the point is this. The Bible says or implies no such thing. These myths come from sources that are not inspired and not reliable. We have no reason to trust or believe them. The book of Enoch, for example, which is really the first place where this stuff comes about. And again, uh, this is like... Uh, 1,200 years after the time of Moses. So hundreds of years passed before anybody began to interpret this or imbue these other kind of mystical understanding into a text that's probably really quite simple and has nothing to do with any of this mess. Um, the book of Enoch was never considered canon or scripture by any Jewish or Christian group, uh, not even as secondary scripture as some of uh, Christian traditions, uh, Apocrypha or Deuterocanon. It's not even considered that. It's not considered to be Christian or inspired in any way, not considered to be accurate or historical or factual in any way. It's basically just mystic fiction that came about at some point in time. No serious scholar believes that Enoch, to whom the book is credited, the biblical character Enoch actually wrote the book. And again, this is another attempt uh, of these mystics uh, to hijack something that is, uh, you know, kind of ambiguous in scripture, this character Enoch, who must have been very important because what the two sentences in Genesis of what we know about it 
take this person and give them a history that the Bible does not give us. And only if you assume these things are true, which is seems to be total fiction come out of thin air, only if you believe that they have some sort of historical or factual basis should you even be persuaded by it at all. Other things we can say about the Book of Enoch, but it's just not a reliable source. It may be interesting, but it should be treated as fiction and not affect our understanding of what the Bible says. So in addition to this historical literary problem, we also, uh, this historical literary authority problem, we also have a theological problem. And the theological problem is this, why on earth would God condone the Jewish people in essence, uh, sacrificing to a goat demon, or in some way honoring or presenting a, a gift or to the uh, to a goat demon, uh, you know. Some say, oh, that wasn't actually a sacrifice or an offering, uh, but it was sending the sins back to their origin. But why would God give any kind of credence or credibility whatsoever to any kind of false, idolatrous religious belief or ideology? Um, you know, just because there may have been people that believed in goat demons at the time in other cultures and other religions, why would God incorporate that into the commandments of what he's telling Israel to do, and especially in light of very strict, very firm prohibitions on engaging in any type of idolatrous worship or any type of idolatrous sacrifice or anything of the sort? Um, why would God include that in the Yom Kippur practice? Seems much more reasonable, much more rational, uh, rational, much more plausible to simply take the traditional view that the word azazel means that the, means it's for the goat for departure, or the goat that's sent away, or the goat that goes to the uninhabitable, desolate place, and not anything that has to do with being given to this demigod or demon figure, which again, we only have reason to believe that if we believe these extra biblical sources hundreds of years after the time of Moses that engage in rampant speculation and conjecture, uh, which should be considered fictional and shouldn't inform our view of God's word. If we just take the evidence from the word of God itself and don't imbue it with anything else. We will not ever come to that conclusion. And so, again, I could say more about it, but I want to move on to these other questions. So the, the next question that um, uh, the, this uh, part of this question is, who is the night creature mentioned in Isaiah 34 and 14? Well, this is another example of how this mystic, occultic influence capitalize on relative uncertainty or ambiguity of a term or a verse to introduce erroneous concepts that are otherwise foreign to scripture. So Isaiah 34 prophetically describes God's vengeance and judgment upon the nations and particularly uh, the kingdom of Edom, which the kingdom of Edom historically descended from Esau, from the famous duo Jacob and Esau. Jacob represented God's righteous people. Esau, and then later Edom, his descendants, represented 
the heathen people, if you will. So even the representation of Edom represents all, you know, the wicked kingdoms of the world here. And this is God's vengeance and judgment upon it. Now, this is probably a dual prophecy, and I'm getting a little bit off the topic here. Uh, but it was literally fulfilled in antiquity when the kingdom of Edom was destroyed and judged by God, probably also to be a dual prophecy to be fulfilled in the last days in Armageddon and the, the vengeance and the judgment of God uh, through Christ on all the, the wicked kingdoms and wicked nations and the wicked people of the world. In any regard, um, so this prophecy was heavily hyperbolic using a lot of symbolic language. What we mean by hyperbolic or hyperbole is that refers to exaggerated statements not meant to be understood literally. And let me give you some examples here from the same chapter, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 34. It talks about, you know, this, this bloody battle and war of God's meeting out his vengeance and judgment upon Edom and these heathen people and, you know, mass casualties and, and, and talks about the, the reek of the decomposing corpses filling the air. Well, that could certainly be literal, but then it talks about the mountains being melted away from the torrent of blood uh, of the, of the, those who are killed. Well, no matter how much blood is actually said, shed, how many thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people may lose their life and shed their blood, it's hard to imagine it being enough to literally melt the mountains. So we think that there's a little bit of hyperbole involved here, which is, you know, a common literary device that's used in scripture and elsewhere in writing. Also, it talks about the skies will roll up like a scroll and the stars will wither like leaves on a vine. Well, again, you know, we can talk about this being the last days, and that may be the case, but at least we know it was a prophecy that was fulfilled with the destruction of the kingdom of Edom in antiquity. And since the stars are still in the sky today, we have no reason to believe they withered away uh, at the time that this prophecy was fulfilled. So again, that's hyperbolic language. When we move on to verses 9 through 17, it describes Edom's fate as a blazing, smoking inferno. It refers to it as uninhabited wasteland in ruins, overgrown with thorn and briars. And so it talks about there being no more kings and no more princes and no more nobles there. And in fact, the prophecy goes on to describe that the, it can only be inhabited by these unclean creatures, uh, these creatures of the night, describing the total, basically this is again hyperbolic language to describe the total destruction, the total desolation of the land and the total humiliation of the former inhabitants of this land that are now extinct, if you will. So as a part of this, as the total humiliation and reversal uh, of this kingdom, it's only going to be inhabited by these creatures of the nights. And various translations have kind of uh, English translations. Uh, some of the animals that are described here are a little disputed. They're translated a couple of different ways, but the list would include owls and herons and ravens and jackals and ostriches and hyenas and wild goats and sand partridges and porcupines and uh did I say hyenas? I don't remember. And, and other and, and night birds is, is one. And so one thing they all have in common and they're all kind of somewhat weird, scary, nocturnal creatures. And so uh, many of them are also uh, kind of symbols in ancient uh, cultures and ancient pagan uh, heathen religious worship. Uh, and so 
we have to ask ourselves the question. This is a kind of a cart and horse question. You know, are they are they dark and mysterious because they were uh, the symbols of pagan religions or did the pagan religions reuse them because they were just naturally kind of dark and mysterious and and scary uh probably probably the latter but in any regard it just that talks about that in terms of the prophecy again emphasizing the total destruction and devastation and humiliation of the land and the people of edom but one of the terms here in one verse verse 14 and this is the only time that this word is here used in scripture is a Hebrew term that is pronounced something like the term Lilith. We don't know if that's exactly how it's pronounced. Again, it's the only time this term is used in the Bible. And so therefore, again, just like as in the case of Azazel, uh, as is the case in linguistics, uh, you know, there's no dictionary that we can consult that comes from that time to know exactly what was meant by this word but we know from the context it's describing some type of nocturnal animal most likely a bird or a species uh, a bird-like species again due to the context so several translations translate this word uh, lilith as night animals or nocturnal animals or night creatures or night birds um, and some get more specific, uh, for example, the literal translations that we referred to earlier, the King James Version, the LITV, the YLT, and some others, translate it screech owl or night owl. So they assume that that is this owl creature. And some of the modern translations simply leave it untranslated. And just so you see this Lilith that appears there, which is unfortunate. It's like their cop out their way of not taking a position on what this might mean. Kind of giving, you know, more rampant speculation, a breath of air. By the way, the same deal was with the Zazel. I don't know if I mentioned that. Some modern translations just simply leave it as Zazel, which is why this question probably came up in the first place. You come across these words in the modern translate English translations of the Bible, it's uninterpreted and it makes you scratch your head. What's going on here? So again, people capitalize on this relative ambiguity, this relative uncertainty about the word, and to say, oh, it's got a deeper meaning. It's got a darker meaning. It's got a mystic, mystic meaning. It's got a meaning that, you know, is about, you know, dark forces and all this stuff. But again, the Bible doesn't say that. There's no evidence in the Bible to assume that. There's nothing that the Bible even insinuates that that might be the case. It's only when we borrow from other extra-biblical sources, hundreds of years after the fact, people that uh, wrote these that had questionable character and questionable motives uh, that for all intents and purposes are fictional, that we begin to even consider that this might be the case, which I obviously, as you can tell, I don't think is probably the case. Could I be wrong? I could be wrong. Uh, but again, logically, reasonably, rationally, uh, literally, it doesn't seem to be the case that, that this Lilith refers to uh, anything other than some type of a night bird. Now, because owl was associated with this mythical uh, goddess demoness of ancient Babylonia and Assyria and Mesopotamia and Sumeria. 
um, that's known as a name similar to Lilith. Again, we don't know if this is, it's probably not the same word, although it might have the same linguistic origins. But because owls were associated with this creature, some people say, oh, it's referring to this Lilith creature that's known to other ancient cultures. And this Lilith creature became known as this, like this female goddess, demigod, demoness who consumed children and this sort of thing. And so it's saying, oh, it's referring to her. So in other words, what they're saying is the Bible confirms that this creature is real, that there's this other demon. It's not just Satan, and but there's these other evil forces and either demons too. Now we have Azazel and now we have Lilith and now we have these other ones. And in the book of Enoch, it talks about other ones. Again, we have no reason to believe that's the case. So I could go on more into, you know, the idolatrous pagan religions and, and, and that sort of thing and how that came about. But no one even assumed that or thought of that or, you know, began to question that until the Bible started being, the Old Testament started being translated into Greek in the 3rd century AD, later into Latin, uh, 3rd century BC, later into Latin in the 5th century AD, when, when these translators used spiritually mythological charged words to translate some of these things, that the speculation began to become more and more rampant, that it meant something more, because now it's using these words that are common to the, the Greco-Roman uh, uh, mysticism and mythology and things. And so the Jewish mystics seized on that, again, in the Dark Ages and what have you, and began to put a whole backstory to this, this creature, this demoness Lilith, and how that this is... Uh, so again, they seized on this innocuous verse of scripture to try to give some credence or evidence that the veracity of that this creature exists when that's the farthest thing what the Bible is actually saying. Again, we could go on about that and give more information, but but if the Bible is your source of truth and evidence, if you're only using scripture to interpret scripture, you will find no reason to find any kind of demoness or anything in this in this verse or, or any others. If you want to rely on external myths and legends that come from pagan and heathen religion, that mystics and occultic individuals uh, tried to explain into the text hundreds of years later, then you might begin to see this 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 theme emerge. But I'd rather just let the Bible interpret the Bible and not fictional, spiritual, mystical writings from other group of people with questionable motives. And that brings us to the, the third and final uh, part of this. And uh, so this is the, the part of the question uh, where the where the is written in to the podcast. Please read Genesis 1. 26 through 27 and Genesis 2 18 through 22. My question is why a human female was created twice. One isn't said how and one is from Adam's rib. Well, Bible readers through the ages have noted what appears to be at first blush two different creation accounts in Genesis 1, uh, basically through the Genesis 1, basically through Genesis 2 and 4. Remember, the verses and the chapters didn't exist in the original writings as were added centuries and centuries later, just 
for quick reference. So basically the beginning of Genesis 1 till about verse 2, 4, and then beginning to 4b and onward seems to be different details about the creation story. So some have kind of wondered is, you know, what's the deal with this? Is, is it two different accounts? What's going on here? So it's caused some, I wouldn't say confusion, but some speculation and some debate on what is exactly meant by this construction of the creation account. And again, this gets into the demonology and mysticism because these people who are bent on taking these ambiguous, uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, uncertain references, and they take, they seize upon this as an opportunity to give it a backstory, <laughs> to give it, you know, a history that the Bible doesn't give it. And so later, much later in history, again, hundreds of years later, Jewish folklore and mysticism describe Adam as having a wife prior to Eve named of all things, of course, Lilith, to try to link it to this demoness uh, source. And this, this so, and I won't get into all, because, and the other thing is this kind of, you know, the different sources that describe these kind of things are contradictory in and of themselves. So there's no internal consistency of these different legends and what have you. So again, there's no biblical precedent or explanation whatsoever for this. It simply came out of thin air uh, you know, centuries, centuries later, and especially now the the Lilith uh, myth, the Lilith tradition of the demoness, as we described from Isaiah, you know, came about, uh, you know, sometime in the Second Temple period, again by Jewish mystics. But as it refers, dating it back to Genesis and a and a, a quote unquote wife of wife of Adam. Uh, it wasn't even until the Dark Ages that anyone talking about like uh, the the a work called the Alphabet of Sirach from AD 700 to 1000 or the Alphabet of Ben Syria from AD 800. Uh, so these are a couple thousand years after uh, Genesis was probably actually written uh, and that you know, people even came up with these crazy ideas. And even later in the 12th century AD, this form of Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah or Kabbalah, as some pronounce it, and this book called the Zohar, it talks about this sort of thing too. But none of this is even hinted at in scripture. You have to get it from other sources that are not scripture and that no one has ever uh, uh, believed were, were scriptural inspired. So obviously, in my opinion, this is all wacky nonsense. It's all dangerous spiritual mysticism and demonology. All these ideas developed literally thousands of years uh, after Genesis. And in, in this case, 2,300 to 2,600 years after the writing of Genesis. So, uh, you know, long, long time later. And so... Um, that that's where that comes from. So again, and I know I'm kind of sounding like a broken record here, but if you use scripture as your guide and you just take the information that scripture provides you, you would never in a million years come up with these harebrained wacky ideas. But if you begin to borrow things from pagan religions and borrow other customs and traditions and myths and imbue them into that and take writings that try to do that from hundreds and thousands of years later, then that's where people get these ideas, not from the Bible 
itself. Now, on a related topic, uh, you know, critics have tried to uh, seize upon this idea that there's two different, quote unquote, two different creation accounts. And so I, outside of the topic, uh, so we're done with demonology and mysticism now, and I just want to explain uh, how we can reconcile these supposed two different accounts uh, uh, in, in Genesis uh, of the creation. So, you know, some have seen this not as a, as a way to insert demonology, but some people who are unsympathetic or even hostile towards the Bible, uh, critics of the Bible say these true, two accounts of creation pose serious problems for the Bible. They will tell you that this is proof that Moses is not the author of the book of Genesis because it's clearly, they would say, and I'm being, you know, facetious here, but they'll say it's clearly two different authors with two different writings styles that was cobbled together at some point later in history and attributed to Moses. And so this is a way to basically undermine the authority and the inspiration of scripture. Obviously, I don't believe any of those things. Or people would even say, uh, oh, this, these, these different details, they demonstrate clearly that Genesis is not divinely inspired. It's not inerrant. It's not authoritative because it has contradictions in it. We have these two different accounts of creation that are contradictory. So they use it as a way to undermine these biblical doctrines of inspiration and authority and inerrancy of scripture. So, of course, none of these things are true. There's no biblical evidence for Adam having more than one spouse or mate. There's no contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that point to some kind of uninspired dual authorship. There's really a quite simple way to reconcile these these seemingly different accounts of creation. And, and let me just describe it very, very quickly here. Genesis 1 and 1 through Genesis 2 and 4 simply provides a structured chronological overview of creation, most likely the purpose of which is to differentiate the facts of creation by the one true God, uh, differentiate that from the numerous pagan origin myths that existed at the time that Moses lived and wrote this and in the, in, in the time of the patriarchs of patriarchs that came before him who uh, whose stories are given uh, in the book of Genesis. And so basically what God is inspiring and saying through Moses and through this historical documentation uh, of, of Genesis 1 is saying, listen, this is the how what happened. This is how creation happened, not according to the myths of the Sumerians, not according to the creation stories of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whatever. Uh, but I guess they didn't exist yet at the time, but the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians. But uh, but this is the truth about how the world came to be. And so Genesis 1 through 2-4 two, two, um gives this uh, chronological overview of creation to differentiate from the false information that was maybe popularly believed at the time that it was written. So it was to set the record straight. Then what happens, beginning with Genesis 2 and 4, is the author team seems to take a step back and say, now that we've established the true order of creation, what really happened, let's take a step back and fo focus on the account 
of the creation of mankind specifically. And then it takes on a more lyrical narrative style. So this first account then provides a general outline and structure. And then the second account, if you want to call it that, goes back and fills in some of the important details, especially relating to the creation of humans and their special relationship with God, the creator. Now, the general account, if you want to call it that, in Genesis 1, uh, God creates the heaven and the heavens and the earth, provides an overall picture of God creating the land for humanity to dwell in and that sort of thing. It's a simple statement of creation of human in God's image, male and female. We're talking about here in Genesis 1. But no further details are given about the creations of human here. Uh, humans here were not given any any further information, just the simple statement that God created humans and he created them male and female. In the detailed account that gives that is more human centric that's given later, uh, when it goes back to fill in some of the gaps here, now we're given here beginning with Genesis 2, 4 and onward, we're giving specific details of creation of humanity. Uh, we are given... Uh, information that fills in the blanks uh, that were not mentioned in the first section. For example, we're given the names of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. We're given the location where they were placed in the Garden of Eden. We're given an explanation of how they were created. Adam was formed from the dust and Eve, uh, Eve was taken uh, from Adam, taken from Adam's rib. Now, none of those details contradict the first account because the first account is very brief and lacking detail just that God created humans male and female and then we're given more information later as the story of man begins so both describe the same creation it's just approaching it from two different angles two different perspectives so these are not contradictory by any means in fact they're very complementary and uh and so the takeaway here is that um is that um you know we don't have to rely on these these other you know secular viewpoints to inform our uh, uh opinion about the bible the bible speaks for itself and by the way this style uh, of going giving a kind of fact-based overview and then moving to a more lyrical style after the chronological uh, overview is presented is not unique to the Bible it's uh, at all it's it's uh, it's a common literary practice used in many uh, ancient and and contemporary works and it doesn't point to two different authors it just points to uh, two different styles in the same document by the same author. So on this whole topic that we've discussed here in this episode, demonology, uh, mysticism, uh, what are the takeaways that I, that I want to leave you with here today? Well, first, the Bible never introduces or advances any demonology or any mysticism on these verses or any others. It never, uh, the Bible itself never comes to any of these conclusions or even implies any of the things. It's the mystics and the occultics hundreds and even thousands of years later that seize upon these relative, uh, these relatively uncertain, uh, ambiguous terms and verses uh, in order to imbue or insert their ideology of religious thought into it. In other words, they hijack 
these terms and verses in the Bible and attempt to validate their own erroneous views. So we shouldn't fall for it. We shouldn't use uh, uh, mystic, you know, apocalyptic, fictional, uninspired, uh, unauthorized uh, writings from centuries and millennia later in order to understand uh, what the Bible says, and especially in these areas that um, are, are clearly just hijacked to make it sound like it's saying something that it doesn't say. And we can, and I say this is a repetitive theme. We've seen similar things in the understanding of Leviathan, another question we answered before, and understanding about the origin of giants in the Bible in Genesis 6 and onward, as we discovered in other episodes of this podcast. It's a repetitive theme. It's a bit scary. It's a bit dangerous that people automatically go there. I know it's kind of part of our nature to want to gravitate towards the mysterious, towards the unknown, towards the spectacular. Uh, but sometimes uh, the Bible, uh, these these verses and terms, uh, probably the rational, logical, uh, common, real meaning of these three verses uh, is not quite as dramatic uh, and, and mystical as some want them to make some want to make them out to be I should say so that's the episode for today on demonology mysticism and these three particular verses that are abused in order to try to verify these erroneous concepts so thank you for listening today God bless you I'm so glad uh, uh, for the success of this podcast so far and look forward to bringing many episodes in the future. So that's all the time I have for now. So until next time, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Farewell for now.